the church grows. We don't want to get this wrong, Lord. We want to get it right and think right so that you can get the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So in Matthew 16, Jesus sort of has a pause as he's walking with and, and talking with his disciples. They're, uh, they're at a place called Caesarea Philippi. not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And uh, so Jesus said he's going to build his church on this rock. And I believe we understand that that rock is the confession that Peter made that who Jesus was. The identity of Jesus, the Son of the living God, the Christ, the Messiah, is the rock that the church stands on. And uh, anybody can die on a cross, but the understanding is that it was the Son of God who died on the cross, and that gives a whole new realm of power and importance to the gospel and to the uh, death of Jesus on the cross. So, but uh, the phrase that I'm focusing on this morning is just clipping a few words out of verse 18, where Jesus said to Peter, after Peter had identified correctly who Jesus was, Jesus said, I will build my church. I like that. Kind of takes the pressure off. I know a pastor in the States. Uh, you probably heard his name, Andy Stanley from Atlanta, Georgia. has a big church. And I heard a message once by Andy Stanley, and uh, I never forgot it. Because he was telling about a personal lesson that he learned in his life. And uh, he'd been uh, working really hard to build his church and to help it to grow and to teach it and preach the gospel and make disciples and all those sorts of things. And he was getting worn out and uh, his marriage was suffering because he was spending so much time at the church. And he said, my prayer always used to be, Lord, I'm going to work really hard to build your church and I want you to take care of my wife because I'm not around much. If you know Andy, you'd hear the humor in that, but, but it was true. It was part of his story. And, uh, and he said, one day, he said, God showed me something I'll never forget. God showed me verse 18 here in Matthew 16, where Jesus said, I will build my church, not you, Andy, me. And then he referred Andy to Ephesians 5 that says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he had a whole paradigm change in his ministry where he said, now my focus is on doing what God told me to do, and that is to love my wife, i.e. be present more and paying attention, etc., cetera, in, in, in relationship with his wife, and to let Jesus build the church. He had it backwards, right? He was building the church. He asked God to take care of his wife. God said, no, other way around. And so here we have that verse right here in Matthew 16 where uh, Jesus says, I will build my church. Really, that's the, that's the main point and the only point of this whole message this morning. God builds his church. 
uh, not human ingenuity and human effort. Though there is a place for that, we've got to find its right place. Why this subject? Well, I think that the North American Evangelical Church is struggling. I think the North American Evangelical Church is, in some ways, in trouble. Uh, there have been some cataclysmic, catastrophic failures of leadership uh, in big churches that have affected tens of thousands of lives negatively. There have been moral failures. There have been power struggles. Pastors have been defrocked and lost their credibility and, and asked to leave their churches. Pastors that preach the gospel, pastors that, that lead evangelical churches, but something has been wrong in the thinking of the church and its leadership and its pastors about how to go about uh, building the church. Young people are leaving the church. Church attendance is declining all over North America. It seems like all of the uh, entertaining and interesting things in society are capturing the heart and the attention of Christians more so than the gospel and Christ and the church. And what's wrong with that? There's an awful lot wrong with that. And there are problems in the church to this very day. <clears throat> the church has become entangled, perhaps more so in the U.S. to the south of us, entangled in political issues, not gospel issues, paying more time, spending more time talking and arguing and fighting uh, about political things rather than seeking to preach the gospel, which is our main job. And it has divided the church terribly in some cases. So just sort of setting that as a backdrop about why we are investigating this topic of who builds the church. Because who we think builds the church is vitally important about how we'll go about it and, uh, and where our faith is and what we'll pray about, or if we'll pray at all. Back in the 1980s and in the 90s, there was something in the evangelical church called the Church Growth Movement. You might have heard of it. It was, a, it was very well-meaning, and it's not all, not all bad, but uh, there were seminars galore, conferences every second weekend all over the U.S., many of, some of them in Canada as well, and the conferences were all about how to make your church get bigger, in, in my words. How to grow your church. There was a seminar. Uh, some churches kind of get stuck at the 200 people level, right? And some get stuck at 300 people and 500. You can't break through. So there were seminars and books and a whole, this is before digital, whole sets of cassette tapes. Uh, and, and they would be uh, labeled, How to Break the 200 Barrier how to break the 300 barrier, how to break the 500 barrier. And they would give you text, uh, sorry, sorry, techniques and uh, ideas. And there would be books about how to grow your church. And there would be books by pastor so-and-so about how I grew my church from 25 people to 2,500. And, uh, and we were gobbling up all of this material. Just like, woo, this is going to be, this, here's success right here. But it's died out. And we don't have those seminars anymore because I think they were built on a faulty premise to a large degree. As I said, many good things, but uh, sort of an underlying crack in the foundation about who builds the church in the first place. Churches have come to be famous or infamous by how they measure their growth. Pastors often call these the, the four B's. 
<coughs> bodies, bucks, buildings, and buzz. Bodies is head counts. How many bodies are sitting in your seats in your auditorium on Sunday morning? That's a sign of success, is it? Uh, bucks, how many dollars are in your offering plate? Uh, there's another sign of success. If you have uh, 200 more dollars in your offering plate this week than last week, we're growing. Whew, things are great, are we? Then, then there's buildings. Uh, what's the square footage of your buildings? Do you have a building program on the go? Are, are, you, are, you, are you, you know, I, I go to pastor's luncheons, at least I used to, and uh, we would say, how are things going in your church? But what we really meant, are you growing in numbers? Are you building a new building? You know, we're, we're all, our, our, our minds are attuned to these sorts of uh, quantitative measurements. And the last one is buzz. Basically, is there a buzz in the city? Are people talking about you and your church? If so, you must be successful. Excuse my French, but it's all a bunch of garbage. Because those are not biblical criteria. Uh, I've been reading a book uh, called The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb. And I'm just going to pick a passage out of here about a pastor, a successful pastor, it doesn't give his name, who confessed the following. He said, I'm pretty sure a smart, productive atheist could do my job well, said a successful pastor. By successful, I mean what we tend to mean when we use this term in the church. He was at the helm of a church that was growing significantly. His words shifted the tone of the conversation as we talked, and I paused, trying to process what he had just admitted. He had come to realize that much of his success was built on his own talents and abilities, the power driving the success of his ministry was his own, and it scared him. He was disturbed by the notion that he could succeed in ministry without depending on God. It troubled him that he could do ministry in the flesh and be praised for it. <clears throat> Even more disconcerting was the fact that he could lead confidently, think strategically, and cast an exciting vision for his church, and none of this required he even be a Christian. It wasn't that he was doing ministry in the flesh that unnerved him, although that was certainly enough. More disturbing was that his view of ministry didn't depend on God even existing for things to work well. And then the author of the book, <coughs> Jas uh, Jimin uh, Gogol, says, This conversation was so a sobering moment for me. As I reflected on my life in ministry, it occurred to me that I also devoted much of my time as a pastor to relying on my own strength. I relied on my communication skills, my academic training, and my own thoughtfulness and creativity rather than on God. And we need to search our hearts as to what we are truly relying on as pastors, but even as an entire congregation. What are we looking to? What are we trusting in? What are we relying on? to see the church be fruitful and grow. 1 Corinthians 3 is my next passage I'd like us to look at. This is the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> maybe the greatest missionary and church planter that's ever existed. And he's writing to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church had a problem uh, because they were uh, falling into divisions within their church. The Corinthian church knew about Paul, of course, personally. He, he visited them and helped to plant that church. They knew about Peter, the apostle. Maybe he had visited Corinth. They knew about a guy named Apollos, uh, who we don't know a lot about Apollos, but we know he was a very powerful speaker and a true blue Christian. 
And, uh, and so people were breaking down into, and some of them were saying, I am of Paul. And others were saying, oh, no, I am of Apollos. And others were saying, oh, what's wrong with you guys? Peter, he's the man. And they were trusting in men. And they were putting men on pedestals and trusting that, that, uh, that, that, that these individual men were going to make the church successful and that they were going to make the church grow. And Paul wants to address that head on, and he does uh, in the first three chapters of Corinthians. But I'll just read you some of this uh, <clears throat> here in verse, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. We'll get to that verse. It's in the passage, but I'll read you a little bit more. Paul says, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? written about himself, only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So he puts his finger on it immediately and says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? And by implication, what is Peter or any other great leader? He said, we are servants of God in his church. We are servants with an assigned task. We didn't build a kingdom. We didn't build this church. This is not our church. This is God's church and uh, we serve here. When we walk around amongst the congregation, we are just fellow servants. Everybody else in the congregation serves God as well. Leaders serve in a particular way. But we are all just servants of God in the church. I like that phrase, as God has assigned to each his task. I.e., God owns the whole thing, runs the whole thing, and assigns tasks to us that we are to obey and carry out faithfully. That grows the church. It disturbs me and bothers me when I hear of uh, pastors, well-known pastors uh, of big churches, maybe moving from one church to another and negotiating higher and higher salaries and, and uh, talking through the perks and the benefits that they could get by being pastor at that church. Where Paul would say, uh, I'm just a servant here doing the task that God has assigned me. And I'll do it no matter what. We know that Paul paid a horrible price often to do his work. He didn't care about whether he had the pastor's parking spot or not in the, in the, in the parking lot or whether he had all these benefits. He was there to serve God, period, only. And, uh, and that was the strength of the early church in those days. Reading a little further here. <clears throat> Verse 6, I planted the seed, says Paul. Apollos watered it. Those were their assigned tasks that Paul spoke of. Paul planted seeds. That means he's sort of on the, on the first wave, coming in, planting the seed of the gospel. People got saved and came to Christ, believed in Christ as their Savior, their Lord. They repented of their sins, and God was building his church out of redeemed sinners. And then the, the seed, though, as it began to grow, needed watering. It needed teaching. Apollos was a master teacher, and Apollos watered the seed that Paul planted. They were working in, in, in combination with one another, cohesively together, uh, intermingling their ministries uh, that God was leading them to do. So he, I read it again. Apollos, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. Now the, the killer phrase, but God made it grow. I planted, Apollos watered, but we didn't make anything grow. God made it grow. I have a garden down the road at Ignatius College, rent some, rent some dirt down there. And uh, I plant, 
I planted some lettuce and some tomatoes and some beets and stuff like that this summer, and then I watered it, because there's a job for us to do in that. But I, I didn't make it grow. That's crazy. I don't, I don't have the power to give life or to make something grow. Uh, leaders or gardeners or whatever, we can help uh, contribute to the conditions that are good for growth. You can plant, you can water, and in the church there are conditions that are good for growth, but only God makes things grow, and that is the foundation of church growth. And that means we have to look to God in new ways that we never have before, I believe. Verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, says Paul. Can I read that again? So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. We're putting people on pedestals and saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. Paul is shaking his head saying, we're nothing. We're just servants here planting, watering, but God is making it grow. Let's give the credit where the credit is due. And then he says, but only God. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. There's the second time he says this in a couple of sentences. God causes the growth, and here God makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. That's our role. That's a privilege. You are God's field, God's building. Paul here is using the analogy of a field where you're growing things or a building that's getting built. And he says, you are not Paul's building. You are not Apollos' field. We are his fellow workers, but the field is God's and the building is God's and he oversees, the, he's the foreman over the whole thing and uh, he watches over and guides the construction of the building or the laying out of the crops and their harvesting in the field. That's not our job to, to oversee that, says Paul. We water, we plant, we serve as God assigns us, <coughs> and God makes it grow. Any pastor who looks upon his church as his own project, his own baby, his own uh, ministry, is wrong. He has a faulty understanding of, what, of how things work here. And any church, any group of Christians uh, who, who, would <coughs> who might say, oh, we're so lucky to have Pastor so-and-so here. He's really making our church grow. That church has a faulty understanding. God makes things grow. Do we be thankful for each other and thankful for ministry leaders and thankful for our pastors? Of course, of course, of course, of course. But they don't make things grow. Kinds of growth. So uh, what kind of growth are we talking about here? And usually we're kind of thinking numbers. We, we like numbers because numbers give a good, clear indication of where we're at, right? And uh, so, uh, you know, one pastor says to another pastor, is your church growing? How's it doing? And you say, well, yeah, we got 300 people coming every Sunday. And oh, really? Wow. And th those numbers kind of mean success. Uh, or uh, we, numbers are easy to count. This is the four Bs, this is the bodies, right? The bodies in the seat. You count bodies, you keep a chart, you have a graph. If it's going up and to the right, we're doing good. Offerings, you can count dollars. You count the offering every week and if it's going up and to the right, we're growing, we're doing good. 
building, some square footage, you can count the same thing. I'm not sure how you count the buzz. You, you just listen to what people are saying. But uh, I think those are the wrong criteria. Nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the New Testament, anywhere, do the writers of the New Testament urge the churches to grow in numbers. You guys, you're kind of small. You need to have a new program here to get your church a little bigger. Never says that. Only a couple of times are numbers even mentioned in the New Testament. That is in Acts when the early church was born, and it says there were 3,000 saved and there were 5,000 believers, and then we're done with numbers. No more talk of numbers. There's a lot of talk of growth, but it's not numerical growth. What kind of growth then are we talking about? All through the New Testament, you will hear and read things like grow in love, grow in wisdom, grow in faith, grow in humility. And that's where God wants us to grow in our lives and in our churches. I have this, I have this funny, odd, strange belief that if we will pay attention to growing in the areas that God tells us we should grow in, faith, love, wisdom, etc., the numbers will take care of themselves. We should not pray that God would make our church get bigger. We should pray that God would grow our hearts bigger. Grow them in love. Grow them in wisdom. Grow them in humility. And if so, God will see that the people, people around us are coming to Christ. And in that way, actually, our numbers will grow larger if we pay attention to the right kinds of growth. <clears throat> Jesus said, he said it so well in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, seek first. Remember, seek first. To grow in numbers? No, seek first the kingdom of God, the interests of God and the rule and the reign and the, the, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. All these other things being the more tangible, hard assets. Uh, but seek the softer, more invisible things, as I've been saying. And God will take care of other things for us. <clears throat> how do we know, like I said, it's easy to measure numbers, but how do we measure if we're growing in love? How do we measure and know, it's nice to know, if we're growing in wisdom or grace or humility? I think the only way I know of how to measure that, maybe measure is the wrong term, I think we listen. We listen to what people are saying. And we, we, we watch what's happening in people's lives. And if we see people making good choices in life, in their marriages, in their work, in their finances, in their family, etc., making good choices, we can conclude, you know what? God's helping our congregation to grow in wisdom. And then if we see people being loved and people being cared for and people talking about it and giving testimony to how so-and-so uh, cared for me and my need and how my small group was helping me move and, and things like that, we're hearing there evidence of growth of love, growth of service. And so we have to listen to what's going on. We have to be patient, and it's more of a long-term thing. Uh, but we can be encouraged that we are growing in the things that God wants us to grow in as we seek them. I like what Peter said. The Apostle Peter, this was his last, his last words. Second Peter, his letter, third chapter, 
last verse of the third chapter. And Peter was just talking a little bit finally at the end of what he was going to write there. And he was talking about uh, how some of them, uh, were, 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 their faith was in peril. And they were, they were slipping and sliding in their faith. And Peter tells them in 2 Peter 3.18. But grow. Telling them to grow. Don't fall away, he said. Grow. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. And Peter signed off. But his last words were, grow. Grow where? Grow in grace. Grow in the knowledge of Christ. Now, I know our small groups aren't uh, operating yet, but when yours does, maybe you'll have a sermon-based small group, and you could say, hey, folks, how do, we, how do we grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ? What do those words mean? You can discuss that for the whole evening. I recommend it. I'm not going to get into that right now, except that growing in grace and growing in the knowledge of your Lord is super important. That will change your life and change your church. Paul said God does things through us. We don't just sit back with our arms folded and say, okay, God, grow your church. We're going to just sit here and applaud and watch it happens. happen. He, he draws us into the work. He does things, yes, but he does them through people. Uh, and that is true through our service, through our obedience, through our love. Sometimes, and rightly so, we will say the church is the hands and the feet of God, or the hands and the feet of Christ in our community. He's, he's loving and serving people through his people. And it's important to realize that as well, and that we step up and we obey and we serve so that God can do that work through us. How can we tell if it's just us doing it or if it's God doing it through us? Three things, quickly. First of all, again, back to this word listening. Listen to how your church talks about what's going on. Listen to what people are saying. Are they saying, boy, we got a great church. We're an amazing church. We are, I hope we are an amazing church. But if there's a kind of a boastful attitude about how great we are, listen for that and be careful. Because that is not an attitude of humility. Paul said, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, and uh, so we should be listening for each other, ascribing to God and recognizing what God has done in our midst through us. Giving, giving intelligent thought to how God worked there, how God helped that person, how God worked through that small group, how God is working on Sunday morning, and being able to put it into words and, and putting the effort into giving glory to God. I was really encouraged by, uh, uh, we had our, our VBS, Vacation Bible School, earlier in July, and it was a great week, and a lot of people did a lot of serving, and, and the, the week was just a joy. And, uh, but, but I... I was encouraged because listening afterwards to the people who were involved, they were really, truly rejoicing in God. They were just talking about what God did. And it, was it wasn't about what we did and what a great VBS we planned and put on here, but it was about what God did, and there was sincere and humble thanks. So that's the first way to tell if it's, if it's just us or if it's God working through us. Listen to what people are saying. Secondly, uh, check your own heart. Does success in ministry, does growth in ministry, growth in your small group, growth on Sunday morning, does it make you proud or does it make you humble? Does it, does it cause you to bow down and thank God 
with tears in your eyes for how good he is and what he's doing. Uh, and that's the way we can tell also one way or the other. Third way, when you have a failure, when everything goes up in smoke, does it destroy you? Do you fall into a depression for two weeks? Are you angry at people? Or are you just turning back to God? It's his church. Uh, Lord, search my heart to see if I can do anything better, for sure. But uh, if, if failures in ministry destroy you or me, I think I've got my wrong, I think I've got the, my definition of success defined wrongly. Next week, I want to I read now from Acts 2. Before I do, I'll close with that. Next week, I, I, I want to, I have to, talk about prayer. Because God grows his church through praying people. There's something very unique, very special about prayer. We must not give prayer lip service. It must be central to what we do and how we go about it. Prayer is dependence on God, and that is so important. Uh, the church struggles, uh, and, and, so, and sometimes even in the evangelical church, I, I will ask other pastors about prayer in their church, and they'll, as I will sometimes too, just say it's, it's not what it should be. It's not what it should be. And uh, so we must talk about prayer, and uh, I really want to, and I invite you back to hear that and be challenged uh, about, our, about prayer in our lives. Prayer is under assault. Prayer is failing in churches. And churches, as we noted earlier, are also failing. Uh, so we need to talk about that. But let us read in Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is the early church in the early days of the early church. It's a snapshot taken of the church as it, as it uh, was born and began to function. And uh, starting in about verse 40, Peter is preaching says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now that's church growth, but uh, you've got to read to the end of the passage to, to get the key. So here's a description of the early church as they lived their Christian lives. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, very generous, very sharing community, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. Here's the killer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who added to their number? The Lord. How did he do it? Through the way they lived their Christian lives, obediently loving, serving, praying, learning together. Let us follow that great example. And let the Lord add to our number those who are being saved. Dear Lord, thank you for these few minutes to consider such an important topic. I pray you would impress on our hearts that unique conjunction of your role 
and our role and where the power and the life really comes from. And we commit ourselves to you uh, in, in the, for the rest of this day. In Christ's name, amen. Breaking bread, which the early church devoted themselves to, we're going to do that together now. And I ask Andy Penner if he would come up, please, and uh, lead us in the breaking of bread. morning. Uh, my name is Andy Penner, a member here at Grace. As we come to communion, we have an opportunity to remember. <clears throat> if I can take us back to the Old Testament for a moment. In Exodus uh, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, it says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Down in verse 7, then they are to take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And in verse 12 and 13, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So this, of course, <clears throat> is part of the story of how God liberated the Israelites from the Egyptians. As part of the last, as part of the last ten, as part of the last of the ten plagues in Egypt, God said He would destroy the firstborn of every household. The Israelites were told to sacrifice a lamb place its blood on the door frames of their houses to avoid God's wrath. In doing this, they would receive God's mercy as opposed to his wrath. <clears throat> the Israelites were told to sacrifice a lamb and place the... Uh, this was the beginning of the Passover. So let's take the bread together to remember this sacrifice of the lamb. Because you were forsaken, and I'm accepted, you were condemned, and I'm alive and well, Spirit is within me, because you died and rose again. jump ahead to the New Testament, 
Jesus' coming is predicted by John the Baptist, describing him as the Lamb of God in John 1.29, where it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see a connection between the Old and New Testament where the sacrifice of a lamb allows God to show mercy. Communion provides us an opportunity to give thanks to the King of the universe for humbling himself to become a sacrificial lamb for us so we might receive God's mercy instead of his wrath. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing yourself for us. Thank you that because of your sacrifice, we can receive mercy. Allow that we might be eternally grateful to you for what you've done for us. Amen. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. So let's take the juice together and remember Jesus' sacrificial gift for us. you to stand and join us in singing. Not forgiven because you are forsaken. You, my King, would die. 